from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of May. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Throughout our history, you think about it, public investment in infrastructure has literally transformed America. President Biden addressing Congress for the first time, unveiling his American Families Plan. But will it come at a cost for farmers? As corn and soybean prices climbed even higher, tractors are in high demand. We had a very strong close to 2020, and it's only got stronger here first quarter of 21. That's as a shortage of parts and labor plagues equipment manufacturers today. Lumber prices hit record highs. I spoke with one mill operator. He said he's operating at about 80% mill capacity because of all these obstacles that, that, that he's facing right now. But is it really a shortage? And in John's world, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Well, now for the news. If you thought $6 corn looked impressive this week, the market cast that news aside, moving into $7 into a nearly eight-year high. That was before backing down. Soybeans at nearly an eight-year high, moving closer to $16, then dropping back. Wheat futures also at an eight-year high, and hog futures at a six-and-a-half-year high. There are many factors continuing to support the bulls right now. That includes the weather. There is some talk of better rains in the Midwest over the next couple of weeks would be ideal for crops. But others say the Midwest and Northern Plains specifically could be warmer and drier than normal. Also, as much as 60% of Brazil's safrina corn crop is under stress right now. There are also concerns and rumors of China buying up more U.S. crops, but nothing confirmed as of yet. Well, President Biden delivering his first address to a joint session of Congress this week, unveiling what he is calling the American Families Plan. The $1.8 trillion plan includes investments in education, child care, and paid family leave. Now, here are the key provisions. Free universal preschool, two years of free college, increased investment in child care, creation of a national comprehensive paid family and medical leave program, along with expansion of summer lunch programs and tax credits for Affordable Care Act premiums. Now, here's how he plans to pay for it, by hiking taxes on high-earning or wealthy individuals. That includes raising the capital gains tax rate and taxing unrealized capital gains at death. And that's really the big concern for farmers, the end of the practice of stepping up the basis for gains in excess of $1 million. But the White House says the reform will be designed with protections so that family-owned businesses and farms will not have to pay taxes when giving to heirs who continue to run the business. Under this proposal, once you go over $100,000 of transfer value or gain, let's call it gain because it's appreciated property only, once you go over $100,000 of appreciation, you're going to be taxed during your lifetime. And then at death, you can go up to a million dollars, including whatever you gifted during your lifetime. So if you used up the 100000 you'd only be able to transfer 900000 and not owe any type of uh, transfer tax. I call it, a lot of people call it a capital gains tax. It's not capital gains. It is, if a farmer has ordinary assets such as, um, you know, grain or equipment, that's all going to be taxed at the maximum tax rate, uh, likely, for most of those farmers. According to the White House official, the capital gains change could affect three-tenths of one percent of tax filers. Well, the Supreme Court will have the final say when it comes to the fate of those small refinery exemptions for biofuels. 
The justices hearing arguments in the case this week, the case in a review of the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision to invalidate three exemptions for the 2016 compliance year. That court determining the exemption requests were not an extension of existing waivers of the refinery's renewable fuel standard obligations. The high court justices appearing to focus on the definition of extension as both sides presented their case. And that means no action of the current program of pending SREs will take place possibly for months until that decision is released. There are currently 20 SREs pending for 2011 through 2018, with another 46 for 2019 through 2020. Well, this firing up beef producers and pork producers this week. You might have seen it reported recently that part of President Biden's plan to address the climate is to advise Americans to limit their eating of hamburgers to just once a month. But those claims are false. The claims were shared by at least three political leaders on Twitter, including Republican Governor Craig Abbott of Texas and Brad Little of Idaho. It comes after the Daily Mail published a story last week with the headline, quote, how Biden's climate plan could limit you to eat just one burger a month, end quote. Now, the report quoting a University of Michigan study, but the study was published in January of last year and is not related to the president's climate plan. President Biden last week pledged for U.S. to cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, making no mention about Americans' diets. And USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, well, he went on the defense this week denying there was any effort by the president to reduce meat consumption, saying, quote, sometimes in the political world, games get played, end quote. An update on a story we've been following. Farmer Shay Myers in Oregon, known as Shay Farm Kid on TikTok, putting out this video showing his 35-acre asparagus field that he said wouldn't get picked because of a lack of temporary ag workers due to the delays at the border. And then he welcomed people to come pick the produce for free. And it's estimated 6,000 people showed up and they stopped 100,000 pounds of asparagus from going to waste. We're beginning to try and harvest the field that we you know, had to walk by for a week. Our watermelon crop got planted. So as long as we can get people here for harvest time, we, we should be okay. Shea says until Americans realize where their food is coming from and willing to pay more for American products, we're just kicking the can down the road when it comes to temporary workers. All right, that's it for the news. Some areas are parking planters due to too much rain, while others, they're waiting on rain to even plant. We'll see what the forecast holds with Mike Hoffman. That is next. Well, meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now for weather. Mike, some farmers are sidelined from planting due to heavy rains this week, while others are waiting on a rain to even plant. Good morning to you, Tanya. Unfortunately, that is usually the case when you get into dry air and it stays dry for a while. You start to uh, have trouble getting any rain to develop, and uh, that's been the case over North Dakota. That's spreading into parts of South Dakota. It's been the case from West Texas all the way to the West Coast. But it's also been on the wet side, Arkansas, northern Louisiana, even within the past week, these areas had tremendous amounts of rain, uh, parts of that area, into the Ohio River Valley. Very dry western Pennsylvania all of a sudden in the root zone, uh, dry through New England as well, and you can see kind of a hit and miss across the northern Mississippi Valley. As far as the drought monitor goes, uh, it continues to be very dry in those same places. Uh, an extreme drought now for most of North Dakota, expect, except the southeast corner, and that's spreading into a northwestern South Dakota. And near and north of the I-80 corridor, there are some dry areas as well. Now, a week or a month ago, uh, you can see how things looked. 
Uh, it has gotten progressively worse in places. Some uh, areas have improved a little bit, gotten the drought out of uh, northeast Texas, eastern Oklahoma, and all of Arkansas, obviously. Uh, but it has expanded across parts of the Great Lakes and, like I talked about, over the far northern plains. Here's the jet stream as we head through the week. We have some systems moving from west to east, and so that's going to bring some rain to places. There's Wednesday. You still see a pretty good trough there north of the Great Lakes. That kind of digs in, according to our model, into the Great Lakes in the northeast this coming weekend. And you can see that uh, is a progressive weather pattern, kind of uh, west to east, but there are some systems moving through as we head through next weekend. So let's go day by day this week. On Monday, storm system west of the Great Lakes, stationary front to the east of there. It's going to be some areas of showers and even some thunderstorms in that area, maybe a bit of snow in the northwest corner. Weak system diving through the Rockies. That is uh, going to form another low along that cold front. Uh, so the southeast starts to get some uh, showers and maybe thunderstorms. Cold air remains mainly north of the Great Lakes there. Another system diving through the uh, Rockies. That is into the eastern Ohio Valley, central or southern Great Lakes as we head through Friday with some areas of rain and showers and storms. Another system coming into the Pacific Northwest. All right, 90-day outlook. May temperatures above normal coast to coast. Near normal Gulf Coast and farther north below normal into Canada. June temperatures, I've taken the below normal out of there. Above, maybe even much above normal for most of the middle of the country into the southwest. And the same idea right through July with near normal conditions along the east coast. Above normal rainfall expected though, eastern third of the country. Below normal for much of the southwest except the monsoonal rains in the far southwest. Time. Thanks, Mike. Well, is weather part of the reason that we actually saw that run up in commodity prices this week and then the fall back? Garrett Toy and Peter Meyer join us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. We have Garrett Toy and Peter Meyer joining us this week. Garrett, these markets, this freight train, a little bit of a whiplash this week. Double digits up, double digits down. I mean, has anything fundamentally changed with the markets today? No, I think that you've got uh, some new money coming and nothing's really fundamentally changed. You said technical buying on the breakouts last week. The spreads have led things. The May-July spread, um, you know, interestingly, interestingly, interestingly enough, excuse me, uh, trading up to 60 this week. That's 2012, 2013 type levels. Cash is definitely firm. I think you've got a little bit of a panic from the end users and uh, in, in where they're going to source some cash grain right now uh, with the, the farmer being in the field. But, um, you know, you've had liquidity issues and that's, you know, tends to be a sign of, you know, maybe a top is near um, one overnight. We went from, you know, limit up the one night to the next night being limit down. Um, it just shows that things are, you know, little, there's pockets of air in this market and we need to kind of, you know, take a step back and, and stabilize here and try to figure out where we're at. Yeah, the volatility has been extreme as we see that money flow kind of pour in. Peter, are there any warning signs that you've been seeing? No, not really. I mean, we have to expect higher volatility. I mean, some people are making the case of the fact that the, the funds position limits were increased on March 15th. We haven't really seen that reaction in open interest. But what I what I have really noticed and 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 is of concern to me is that Ever since we had that one limit up bid day last week, the latter, by that I mean the bids and the offers in the market, have gotten very small. In other words, even yesterday around Fed time, which is which is somewhat understandable, it was single digits on the bid and single digits on the offer. Night before last, we had the limit down move on very low volume. So 
you know, the position limits, some people are kind of making a deal about that. The open interest certainly doesn't signify that that should be of any uh, any concern. But what I am concerned about is that we seem to have, even though the overall volume is okay, we seem to have less and less liquidity from a uh, from a price standpoint. Yeah, we've seen these big moves, Garrett, at a time when typically, I mean, it, it feels like a July market, right? It feels like a June market. It feels like a weather market right now. Are there fears that maybe we're seeing this price action and the volatility now and that we may not see this in the heat of the summer whenever weather does come into play? Um, it's possible. We we put out some research here uh, last week that, you know, we rarely set uh, highs uh, for new crop corn and or beans in the month of April. In fact, we've never set the highs in, in beans in the month of April. Um, but you have a lot of crosswinds going on. You've got a, a tight domestic situation in the U.S. You do have a weather market in Brazil with a safrina crop. And I think at this point, you know, we're starting into this this dry period. And, and I think people are starting to, to dial in some worst case scenarios of a you know, 100 million metric ton crop or potentially smaller than that. And uh, because of liquidity, and like Pete said, you know, you, you trade the front end because of liquidity. The Brazil, the Brazil drought situation is technically a new crop situation because it's it's going to you know potentially shift more exports to the new crop S and D. Um, but you know because of the liquidity in the front end, people are going to trade it in the May and July contracts. So you've got a lot of crosswinds that are going here. I still think you know that the new crop situation is tight enough. Um, you know, there, everything, everything's going to be on pins and needles, and I think with the amount of money that's in this market. You know, uh, what I thought was impossible six months ago, you know, maybe possible with uh, just the amount of inflationary pressures that are building in this market and, and, and everything else. Yeah. And, you know, you look at some of this, you think that this corn market this week, the price action this week and last week. Pete, do you think that that bought any corn acres and what impact could that have on the soybean side when, when we know stocks are extremely tight? Well, it's going to be interesting to see what the USDA does with their with their May balance sheet in a, in a, in a week or so when they first take a look at their 21-22 balance sheet. So, I mean, to Garrett's point as well, I mean, I I don't I'm I'm I have higher acreage uh, than they do and we still have a carry out basically the same in corn and actually absolutely the same in beans. I think if you use the prospective plantings number, uh, we would end up with a negative carry out. So, it's going to stay tight here. As far as buying acres are concerned, I mean, uh, maybe you bought a few, uh, but I really don't think so. I mean, farmers make their planning decisions months in advance. So this whole kind of uh, idea that we've bought acres during this uh, during this uh, this uh, price ramp is probably flawed. What I do think has happened is that the urgency to put the crops in the ground has certainly been uh, been impacted by the price. Yeah, and we are seeing some weather issues pop up. We'll talk about that more with our analysts later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, sometimes farming, it comes with some regrets. Here's John Phipps. This is a familiar task for some of you. I'm replacing uh, sweeps on a soil finisher, which is just a fancy field cultivator. And... But this year we discovered something. At the beginning of the season, we've had this thing about 30 years. It's been a great machine. And at the beginning of the season, we were going over it and looking at the shanks, this part that holds the sweep. And I noticed it had narrowed. And I remember saying to Aaron, I actually said this, I think we can get one more year out of these. Well, I was all, only off by one year. And so somewhere out in the uh, this 600 acre field around us is the modern equivalent of a caltrop, a little iron star that 
uh, medieval defenders used to use, scatter out to lame the knight's horses. And uh, what we found out is the easiest way to find that is to call in the tire repairman because that's where it'll show up as in one of those rear tires. And so for me, there is, uh, as much as I enjoy doing this job, and it's really not a bad job, I've learned to do it on grass, not on gravel. And so I'm getting this job done, but there's also a level of regret. What was I thinking? I could have you know, done this and replaced them all, but no, we'll go for one more year. Need to be really careful this year. 21 will carry with it and leave us with many regrets. And for those of us who were tickled to death with our sales of the, 19, of the 2020 crop, and when we got $4 and $10 for corn and beans, and now our jaws keep dropping as prices keep rising up, it would be easy to develop a strong sense of regret. What was I thinking back last fall? I know what I was thinking because I wrote down about it. I was tickled to death. We met our financial goals, we had good yields, and we sold it, and okay, that's fine. Now the problem is, I don't normally I would say, well, I'll just use this as an opportunity for next year, but I'm retiring completely, so Aaron's going to use it as an opportunity for next year. The point I want to leave you with, is that I'm struggling to get to, is first off, watch your head when you're doing this. Be, um, take a hard look at the shanks. Uh, it, they're closer than you think. And see, don't let regret spoil one of the most remarkable marketing opportunities I've seen in my 40-year career. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, we'll talk more about some of the iron machinery. Pete has tractor tails next. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we got a really cool story for you with a World War II tie-in, a 1940 Farmall A from Iowa. Beautiful, but an amazing story behind it, Larry. Tell us how you came upon it. It was in 2001, came upon a consignment sale going on in a, in a, a lot, and I walked around and I stumbled onto this tractor. It had a good quarter inch thick layer of cake dust all over the whole thing. Uh, you couldn't see any paint on the, on the top sides. The lights were all covered, everything was generator. Everything was covered. You couldn't under, it, it couldn't, it couldn't tell what it was actually, except it was an A farmall. And I got the bid and he said sold and a, a mid-aged middle man ran up there and really adamant he wanted to buy the tractor from me. And uh, first I told him no, and then I got inquisitive and I asked him why he was so adamant about buying it. And he told me the story that a young man in, in the early 40s had uh, bought the tractor and was gonna, I don't know if he's gonna start farming or something. Anyway, this young man was about the same age as this man's dad. And he got drafted into service in World War II, became a casualty and never came home. The tractor was in a building, the neighboring farm of theirs, and uh, in storage for over 60 years. 
uh, never moved. But when you got it home to the farm and kind of cleaned it up, I mean, this is not restored right here. Oh, it's original. It's original. It's all original. I'm sure that the, the fact that it had that layer of dust on it or dirt on it actually preserved the paint. Well, speaking of tractors, both used and new are seeing some record demand, but that demand is being met with a shortage of some parts and people. We'll tell you about it in our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, trusted, timely tradition. Well, the explosive action in commodity prices is creating high demand for both new and used equipment. But that demand is coming at a time when some parts are in short supply. But the biggest shortage may be in people. That's our Farm Journal Report. As commodity prices exploded, so have tractor sales. So the latest track flash report from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers is showing tractors and combines to be up about 50% for the year. Kurt Blades of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers says when you dig into the numbers a little deeper, the increase is driven by smaller tractors under 40 horsepower. And we've been seeing since April of last year, specifically on those small horsepower tractors, but across the board, it's been really every single month has been uh, over the five-year average. But Blade says the storyline in 2021 isn't just smaller horsepower iron. Row crop tractors and short tractors on the farm are also showing some really solid numbers. In fact, 100 plus horsepower tractors, those typical row crop tractors are seeing about 20% gains for the year. It's a narrative that started showing up in machinerypeat.com data last fall. We had a very strong close to 2020 and it's only got stronger here first quarter of 21 and actually the month of April even stronger yet. The Machinery Peat Used Values Index released to Wall Street this week shows first quarter used equipment sales saw its best performance since the peak of 2013. And that was just like a pressure valve was released. They have the money, they have the optimism, and they can't get the new products. Sale after sale, auction after auction. Machinery Pete says he continues to see record prices posted. So that pushes them into the used market, <laughs> and the auction market was already on fire. So it's, it is this little perfect storm of just conditions. It's like the housing market, basically. Uh, you want to buy a new house, get in line. 50 other people want it. Same with good used equipment. But Machinery Pete says the main issue is availability today. It is. Uh, sales of new combines and tractors, very strong. Um, I think tying the, the whole farm equipment market right now can be uh, kind of uh, simplified into one word, and it's availability. An association of equipment manufacturers says that's not just on used, but new equipment. Well, the supply chain for equipment has been dealt a little bit of a blow. But Blade says record demand in some areas means supplies are extremely tight. You've got a lot more equipment being sold. That's a great thing. However, that means that everything is in short supply, whether that is the components to build up those 
individual tractors or whether that is the steel that makes those raw materials. All of those things are in short supply. And in some cases, tight supplies are even causing a shortage. The one that gets the biggest headlines uh, as a shortage kind of across the entire industry is semiconductors. And there's a global semiconductor shortage. It's not just in the United States. It's absolutely everywhere. And it affects them. That's why you drive by a car lot and you don't see very many cars. From steel to transportation, Blade says the equipment industry has not been immune to the severe supply constraints rippling across America today. Yeah, I think we can see disruptions in the supply chain for probably another year across all industries. Uh, again, driven by the semiconductor con semiconductor issue. Uh, we're I've been hearing you know, 12, 18 months on the semiconductor thing to work itself out. But the biggest shortage isn't coming in the form of iron. It's in manpower. AEM has over a thousand members. Every single one of them is hiring. Every single one of their dealers is hiring. Every single one of their service techs are, are hiring. So there are jobs out there. A shortage of workers plaguing all aspects of manufacturing today. But a lot of times this is literally just keeping the doors open and keeping those supply chains as, uh, you know, keeping the factories open because there is a shortage of workers uh, in manufacturing right now. Some equipment dealers even trying to incentivize high school graduates to go into technician programs with John Deere dealerships hosting signing events. That's as there's no sign of the dynamic demand market for equipment going away anytime soon. Well, and that high demand for equipment may continue if commodity prices continue this run. We'll continue to talk about the markets with Garrett Toy and Peter Meyer next. Well, welcome back to our marketing roundtables. Garrett Toy, Peter Meyer joining us. Garrett, you're in northern Illinois, very close to Wisconsin. And from what I understand, looking at the drought monitor, it's, it's pretty dry up your way right now. Is that a concern for growers in your area? It, it, it's starting to be, I mean, we're kind of in a, a sweet spot where we were, you know, we weren't as dry as they were in Western Iowa, uh, talking to some clients downstate Illinois today that got upwards of two inches of rain. So uh, some of those areas that have not seen, you know, have benefited from the weather from the last couple of years. But in fact, I got a phone call from an agronomist this morning locally that's, you know, suggesting, was asking with, uh, you know, whether the we're going to run some spring tillage on some bean stubble because guys are getting concerned about whether the, the seed would get in the ground. That's for the guys that are trying to, you know, on the tail end of, of planting <clears throat> by Sunday night around here, there isn't going to be much left. And, you know, some large operators in our area are, are, are done with beans and, and half done with corn and, 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 uh, you know, if you're you're planting three, four hundred acres a day, it doesn't take too long to get to get to going. I think by Sunday night we're going to be pretty well done around here. Wow, planting progress! It'll be interesting to see what USDA comes out with on Monday. Do those progress numbers, though, Pete? At this point, considering the money flow that we have in there, considering the dynamics at play that we're already seeing pushing these prices even higher, does planting progress matter at this point? That's it. That's a very good question, and one that I debate quite often with uh, with friends of Garrett and mine, especially with Jared Creed, who you know is who you've had on the show. Yeah, I'm not sure it makes a difference. I mean, certainly it's going to be uh, pause for cause for people that understand what's going on here. Well, let's be honest about it. This market's being fueled by algorithms that are just trading trading momentum. It's also being fueled by the fact that the funds were smart enough to realize that when trillions of dollars come into an economy, inflation will be the ultimate result. So I'm not necessarily sure that it's going to have an impact like it would on a regular year, but it could very well be. I mean, last year, um, as of this Sunday, or I guess it was a day or two off from there, uh, we would have had 50% of the crop planted. 
Last week, we had 17% of the crop planted, and I'm talking about corn there, obviously. So could we have planted 33% of the crop this week? I guess we're going to find out on Monday. But certainly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there is an urgent, this market has certainly created an urgency to get the crop in the ground. Yeah, and Garrett, it's coming at a time where we're seeing these expanded limits. Pete had mentioned it, but do you think these expanded limits that we're seeing announced that, that, that are now into effect, should that come into play with some of these marketing plans that growers have today? Um, I don't think it comes into play. I mean, it, I don't think it should impact the farmer that much. I think it impacts the, the spreads uh, to some extent because, you know, delivery limits used to be 600 contracts for corn, beans and wheat. And now they're 1200. So you might get more of this you know, reaction like you're seeing in the May, July spread uh, this year. But I will take Pete on on this, whether planting matters or not, because, I mean, if you look at the corn spreads, you know, 10 days ago, we were looking at weather that, you know, maybe a little bit questionable, cold weather. And then this weather forecast opened up. Um, so the September, the SEPDIS corn spread, you know, it's it's kind of a hybrid. It's either old crop or it's new crop. And then at the meantime, you had central Illinois processors or rumors paying 100 over for first half August corn. That propped up the SEPDIS. But here this week with the open planting window, it's it's interesting. The SEPDIS, these new crop corn spreads, even new crop bean spreads, it feels like the market's uh, becoming more relaxed that there's not going to be a spring planting issue in here. And uh, then that basically leaves the May and July to be strong because cash is strong. But I, I do think that to some extent that, that planting does, it felt like we have a little bit of, we did have a little bit of U.S. weather premium built into this market. Yeah, Pete, at a time when, when growers are trying to get planted, we've had some interesting things happen on with big oil betting on soybeans. And I know that's something that you've been following a, a, as well. Well, there's a, you know, first off, there's a huge difference between what we what we typically know as biodiesel versus renewable diesel. And you have states on the West Coast and other states throughout the heart of the country that are looking at low carbon uh, fuel scores. In other words, they are going to going to give better credits for fuel that for renewable biodiesel that gets made with 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 certain um, with certain uh, feedstocks. And certainly uh, the feedstock of choice so far has been fats and tallows and greases and that sort of thing, of which there's we only produce maybe 12 billion pounds of that uh, of those combined in a yearly basis in the U.S. But now all of a sudden we see all these all these oil companies that are getting into getting into deals. Um, Loves has a deal with Cargill on fats and tallows. We just saw Valero come out who, by the way, have a deal with Darling, who's the largest renderer in the country. They came out and said there's no more used cooking oil left for renewable diesel. And probably uh, the biggest one that we saw is Phillips 66 with that new um, crush plant going on in Iowa. They bought a minority uh, share in that plant. But if you look at the contract, the contract says that they have first right of refusal on 100 percent of the soybean oil produced from that plant. So we think that there are some pretenders in this in this renewable diesel space. But the contenders are certainly going to make a a, a big influence, uh, have a big influence on it. And obviously, we see that in soybean oil prices as well, over 60 cents, even though today they're taking a little bit of a of a breather. But there again, we talked about the speculative money and the speculative interest. There's certainly a lot of speculative money in the soybean oil market at the moment. Yeah, something to watch. Peter Meyer, thank you so much. Garrett Toy, we appreciate it. We'll take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, Route 66 is iconic in many ways, and one Illinois town is preserving the history of that historic route. We travel the countryside with Andrew McRae. Route 66 may have its eastern beginning point in the city of Chicago, 
but 100 miles down the road, you'll find the city with the museum that celebrates the Mother Road in Pontiac. I'd like to say Illinois was the first one to have all of Route 66 paved. It's kind of why they always say that's where it started. There were other major routes crossing the U.S., like the Lincoln and Jefferson highways, but Route 66 seems to be the one that drives the most attention today. John says that is perhaps because of a special name given to it. It's the name, the Mother Road. And that goes back to John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. He referred to Route 66 as the Mother Road. In the war years, the road carried folks west, creating memories of places to travel when the conflict was over. And then there was something else that put the famous highway in people's minds, even if they had never driven it. What helped in the 50s was the TV program Route 66. Even though maybe two programs were actually filmed on Route 66, it still had that name and that aura. John is curator for this fun and free museum devoted to Route 66. There's plenty of memorabilia from the Mother Road. One of the largest items won't fit inside the building. It's called the Land Yacht, constructed by Route 66 artist Bob Waldmeyer. He later began driving a VW van. Both vehicles are here, and that latter one inspired a movie character. It's a conspiracy van! They used the idea of that van in the movie Cars. It became Fillmore. John says he sees people from many countries and all continents, save Antarctica. Many come to retrace the entire length of the road, with some even renting classic cars or motorcycles to do so. A recent conversation with a gentleman from Ireland helps explain the allure of a highway that still beckons to people far and wide. In Europe, we read about, we hear about Route 66 a lot. He's, secondly, he says, we come to, I want to come to places like Pontiac, the small towns like these are what America is to, to me. Although the decades have passed since Route 66 carried a majority of its traffic from Chicago to the coast, thousands of visitors are still coming here to relive a piece of history as they make the journey themselves. Traveling the countryside in Pontiac, Illinois, I'm Andrew McCray. On Route 66. Thanks, Andrew, and you can hear more of Andrew's travels at AmericanCountryside.com. But up next, a rapid-fire question and answer period with John Fitt. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Well, John Phipps joins us now to answer a few questions our viewers have sent in lately. This week, just a few quick questions and comments. Watched and listened to your thoughts on the PPP program recently. Wanted you to know you aren't alone in questioning this direction. I didn't sign up in 2020. Wasn't aware, but markets would have justified. And when Banker asked recently about it, I declined. I felt many small businesses, restaurants, and others who have been beaten down in these days of COVID need a leg up until things get in gear. When trade, world woes, and weather beats us down, I understand. But, but $5 corn and $13 beans? Not so much. And that's from a voice in Northeast Iowa. Well, you can tell that was a few weeks ago. We're way past 5 and 13. I did end up taking the PPP loan. I used it to do some good for some family members and others, and I'm still not sure how I feel about it. From Mark Borba in Riverdale, California. 
Do you have photos, ideas you've applied to your OASIS that you can share? I've taken a few screenshots of your reports with the shop in the background. But everywhere I look, I see new ideas, thoughtful additions that I hope you'll consider shooting. Anyway, know that in addition to your experience and knowledge of farming, shots of your work site are inspirational and helpful to those who seek to create a similar space. Now, I had been thinking I did a shop tour on customer support just a couple years ago. Turned out it was 2015. So I'm going to update that video, shoot some more details, including bad ideas I'm now working around or correcting, and things I'm thinking about upgrading. It will probably run long, like any guy talking about his workshop. So I will upload the long version and provide a link on our website and the show itself. I may show the shorter version on the air. Finally, a periodic reminder that mugs are free to people who send me comments and questions I can use on the show. As you might have noticed, you need not agree with or flatter me to be selected. And the topic can be pretty much anything I can vaguely relate to agriculture. Haven't been getting too many lately, so chances are good yours will be used. I will even throw in a US of our face mask that I thought was a cute idea, but wasn't. Again, I don't sell the mugs, but they are easy to earn. Well, the shortage of labor in the U.S. may be impacting the skyrocketing lumber prices across the country. We'll have the details next. Well, if you were looking to build a barn, maybe add a deck to your house, good luck. Lumber prices have skyrocketed more than 325% since last year and climbed over 50% this year alone. And there may not be an easy fix. As shoppers face sticker shock when buying lumber, it's higher prices not trickling down to producers. Unfortunately not. Um, if you look at it, uh, stuffage uh, and delivery prices are very hyper-local. Timber March South is a timber price reporting service that covers pricing from eastern Texas to the southeast. Uh, if you look at it from a south-wide level, your stumpage prices are up about 2.5% year over year. Smith says a hyper-local market where southern Georgia growers are seeing stumpage prices up 12% year over year. But that's still a far cry from the 325% surge in lumber prices. I think uh, probably that'll be in the economics books in the future. Smith says inventories were tight leading into COVID-19, but he says there's still a lot of wood available. Inventory growth to drain. We're good at doing what we do in the South. We're growing more than we're harvesting on an annual basis. For University of Tennessee's Dr. David Merker, it's a complex issue that boils down to one main economic principle. From a broad perspective, it's fairly simple as with all commodities, it's a supply and demand issue. While there are a lot of standing trees, Merker says there's an issue in getting that product processed. We've got uh, an ample supply of standing trees or timber. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with an ample supply of, of lumber. And Merker says it boils down to three different bottlenecks that all start with a labor shortage. There's an undersupply of labor uh, in, at all levels in this industry, whether it's logging, uh, mills, or truckers. Um, I spoke with a, a mill operator recently. He said, I hired five people. He said, one person showed up for work and they, and they worked for two days. So that's a, a big issue. Merker says the wet weather in the southeast this winter also put a damper on harvest. And that makes it difficult to log. Loggers can't 
um, they have to follow best management practices. And so they can't just rut up the property and, and um, uh, contribute mud to the waterways and so forth. The final issue, he says, deals with the byproducts. Millers can't get rid of the sawdust and the chips. I spoke with one mill operator. He said he's operating at about 80% mill capacity because of all these obstacles that, that, that he's facing right now. Merker says an abundance of trees today sprouted from an increase in the Conservation Reserve Program more than a decade ago. And if we can't produce enough wood because of labor shortages, then um, that's going to keep prices high. An abundance at the grower end doesn't necessarily uh, correlate to an abundance at the retail end. As the bottlenecks produce higher lumber prices, those in the timber industry say they hope higher prices don't scare off demand. So from that perspective, uh, a lot has got to happen on the consumption side in order to get that in a balance like we were in the mid 2000s. Trying to find a balance as the housing industry continues to explode. Nobody knows what the future will hold. We don't know if this is a new normal or if things will go back. Now, Merker told me it's softwood producers not seeing the benefits of higher prices. He says hardwood growers, which is grown in Tennessee, many producers are seeing better prices at the ground level. Well, that's all the time we have this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm.